people will try and make you care about things that you don't care about. Like, I don't care about period shame and I'm not going to engage with that. Um, but people are like, oh my God, you know, and they will try and push it on you. So I think it's really about um, not wasting energy on other people's judgment. So I think there's a, there's a lot of shame that we inherit, whether it's on purpose or not. And we have to, even as adults, find a way to kind of go, guess what? I'm not taking that anymore. I think that we're starting to see, especially as feminists, the way that shame holds us back. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Women's Health Uninterrupted, where we chat to women doing kick-ass things in the health and wellness space. I'm Lisa Gebilagan, Deputy Editor of Women's Health Australia. Okay, before I introduce today's guest, I have to tell you that our chat is a bloody one. That terrible pun was absolutely intended. We'll be talking about periods, running marathons on your period, even running marathons minus a tampon while you are on your period. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? And if it does, why is that? And how do we go about unlearning this period shame? These are questions today's guest, Yumi Steins, is attempting to answer. Yumi is an outspoken TV and radio presenter and the co-author of a new book called Welcome to Your Period, which she dedicates to the next generation of bleeders. Welcome, Yumi. Yay, thanks for having me. So you co-wrote your new book with the real-life Dolly Doctor, Dr. Melissa Kang, and Dolly Doctor was everything to my friends and I growing up. It just helped us navigate periods, puberty, and hormones. I can't tell you how happy I am that you've reintroduced Dolly Doctor to a new generation of girls. Yeah. Can you tell me how this writing project came about? Yeah, sure. So I have a podcast of my own. It's called Ladies We Need to Talk. And episode one, season one, the very, very first episode, we were like, who can we turn to that's like an authority that we trust and love? And coincidentally, like a, a week before, a survey had come out where some scientists tested all the agony aunts, um, hundreds of letters and um, a few publications, I think seven or eight publications, um, and the one that came out who got the science right 100% of the time was Dolly Doctor. So far more authoritative magazines had made muck-ups and were like around the 70% yes rate, but she got a 100% strike rate with her science every single time. So I wanted to meet her. I wanted to talk to her for the podcast. And then when I came face to face with this associate professor, she's this elegant half Malaysian woman. And I was like, oh my God, you're a mixed race Asian like me. And I was so excited. I I was like, I secretly wanted to say, will you be my mum? Because she's just elegant and so poised and so like brilliantly smart, but very practiced in speaking with people who might be squeamish or embarrassed and just really writing through that and, and calmly approaching the facts. You know, she was, she's just such a gift of a person. So having her on the podcast was was great. And around that was all this response from people around my age, a bit younger, a bit older, who all had a similar affection for Dolly Doctor, who just were like, oh my God, like, I know that you've met Bono, but did you meet Dolly Doctor? And they're like, ah! So I was like, okay, I have to... um, for my own fun, spend more time with her, find a way to spend more time with her. And then my publisher was like, can you please, did you really meet Dolly Doctor? And can you please make a a project that you can work on together there? So, so I uh, reached out to Dolly Doctor, to Melissa and, um, and we landed on this period book because there's nothing out there that's like it. And it's also, I think when you think about Dolly Doctor and those questions that she was asked, they were often around that 
medical process or that bodily process, periods, menstruation, um, that people weren't talking about, were people still finding shame around? That's what I found, even flicking through your book. There's a lot of issues that you touch on that I think even women who have had their periods for decades are still quite ashamed about. Yeah, there's so much. And I think um, part of the beauty of the book is kind of going, okay, let's let's unpack a worst case scenario, you know, like a sleepover and you're sleeping on the floor and you start to leak through your jammies. Like, what are you going to do in that situation? And realizing that even in the very worst case scenario, it's it's very human. It's just yeah. very normal, you know, and, and you are not pioneering period disasters. There are many women before you who have done that, you know, yeah. so you're not alone. And just the, the joy and the gift of being able to share that and say that and also illustrate it, Lisa, like show people this is what it might look like when it happens to you and it's actually it's actually going to be fine. Yeah. Mm. In the interests of sharing, <laughs> I even had a bad experience just a few months ago at work where I bled through my jeans and I was like, oh, shit, (laughs) what do I do? And lucky working um, for a health publication, I had a spare pair of leggings at my desk. But then I thought, what would I do if I hadn't? Yeah. And I love that your book helps people navigate this. Yeah, totally. Because nobody told us when we were kids. No. So when I got my period, my mum sort of handed me some pads and said, look, every month just tell me if you need more. And I felt that deep cringing, like how am I going to even say I need more pads to my mum? Like how am I going to find those embarrassing words? And the way that she was sort of a bit whispery about it and mousy about it, it made me feel furtive and I had to be secret. And um, one time I left bloodied knickers on um, the bathroom sink and a male relative went in and found them. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) He would, would, I'm sure, prefer not to be named, but he was like, you dirty little girl to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's there's a lot of shame that we inherit, whether it's on purpose or not. And we have to, even as adults, find a way to kind of go, guess what? I'm not taking that anymore. Yeah. Because this is stuff that we bring with us as we get older. Mm. And that was a big thing that I learned from your book. There are all these things that I thought, you know what, I should be over this by now, but it's not the case. And I thought about it too. So I couldn't find any Australian statistics, but I did find a poll of UK women that found more than one in three bleeders, to borrow a term from your book, (laughs) face period stigma. And the same report found that over half of women surveyed hide sanitary products when carrying them to the toilet in order not to embarrass others. And I am so guilty of that still. Yep. So can I set you a challenge? Next time you have to take a powder or tampon to the toilet, balance it on your head <laughs> and walk like you're on a tightrope. <laughs> For everyone listening, you can do that too. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> we could call it the Yumi period challenge. <laughs> Let that hashtag go off on Instagram, please. Send us your photos. <laughs> so what do we need to do to take this stigma away? Um, I think... Um, I don't know. I think reading the book is good. I think talking to your friends about it is really good and and opening up that that conversation can be quite joyful. So in researching the book, I I, uh, conducted quite a lot of interviews and I wanted to get that first person account. Tell me about your first period. Tell me about any disasters that happened. And then specific to your particular culture um, or religion, was there anything that informed the way that your parents dealt with your period? Um, And in having those conversations, I found 
every single person remembered it so vividly, no matter how long ago. Some some people it was only a year ago. Others it was 40 years prior, but they could all remember it like it had just happened. And then I think the, the further away they were from that first time, the less shame they had and the more sort of shrugging acceptance they had that this is something that their bodies do and do for many, many years if everything ticks along um, according to sort of what's considered normal. Um, and you just start start to lose shame around it. And I think um, I think that we're starting to see, especially as feminists, the way that shame holds us back and unreasonable expectations hold us back. So I was thinking today about how some women don't want to be seen without a manicure. And I'm like, actually, fuck that because I'm too busy for a manicure. I don't like the smell of nail polish and I don't like the thought that maybe the woman who is doing it for me is being underpaid. So for a lot of reasons, manicures are not on my menu. But what if you are one of those women who takes that as something she needs to do to be able to function in society? It's it's not fair. Same with high heels, same with having the right hair or makeup. And same with having to really bury the fact that you menstruate so that nobody has to witness it but you because it's just so shameful. I think our feminism is a lot about taking those things that control us and shrink us and burden us and pushing them to one side. Yeah. Um, There's also been a big trend I've noticed, say, on Instagram where you see images now of bleeding Mm. as it is rather than you know, the blue liquid that we're used to seeing in those ads. And why do you think this trend is so huge at the moment where people are talking about it more? Well, we're allowed. I think we used to get censored before. You know, you'd try and people would shut it down. I'd be like, oh, my God, you can't do that. It's so disgusting. I um, Speaking of Instagram, I recently posted a photo of my menstrual cup. So for those of you who are new to these, they're like a silicone cup, probably the slightly smaller than an egg cup um, with a little nipple at the end um, and you fold it up, you sort of gather it into a, a smaller piece and then you use it like a tampon. It springs open inside of your vagina and it captures blood. The, the, there's a bunch of positives about a menstrual cup. Um, they're much, much better for the environment. It's hugely better for the environment. But also let's say you work a really long day or you commute. Um, they last maybe 16 hours. They can k- just keep cap- capturing blood for quite a long time, longer than a tampon. The other thing that I really love about them is when I use one, I, I clean it out in the shower. So I just hop in the shower, take it out, and then I get to sit in the shower and have a really good look at what's come out, <laughs> right? And yeah. you don't get the same sort of visceral experience of your menstrual flow when you're using a, ta- a pad or a tampon. So this is a, a chance to really get intimate with what's coming out of your body and realize that it's not actually a horror show. It's mm. just, like, I think there's this, this sort of a need to whip out a tampon, wrap it up and, and, and bin it before you can experience what, you know, what might be quite an informative, uh, like document like that, that is kind of, there's a, quite a lot to, to be read into a used tampon. And I think, uh, our shame and disgust around that is, is not very helpful. So the blood thing that you're seeing on Instagram, I think it could be a sign of the times, but also if people are capturing their blood in a way where they can see it more, then maybe they're excited about it and want to share it. I remember a friend of mine who used a cup years ago and she was telling me that she used to put the blood onto her pot plants because it's supposed to be a good fertilizer. Yeah. 
I, I did that and I told my friends about it last, literally last Wednesday and they were they were like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, you mean no, that's too far. They were like, and I actually sat there and went, have I gone too far? Like, am, I, am I too, like, open with this stuff? But, yeah, it, I mean, it's so rich and vivid. It's like um, beetroot juice, you know. It, it looks like it's rich in nutrients. So, so far the pot plant hasn't expired. Well, that's great. <laughs> Imagine if it just wilted and sort of, ah! Like too much nutrients, too much much nutrients. (laughs) Well, even chatting openly about periods and things associated with periods, we, I was just having a conversation with one of the girls on our team and we were talking about PMS and especially the week beforehand, we both experience quite severe um, symptoms where not only do we feel tired, but even emotionally become quite down. Mm. And we were saying too, when it comes to period talk, it's not just the act of having your pe- the period itself, but all these things around it. And being able to talk more openly about it means that our symptoms are then not discredited or disregarded. Yeah, totally. Um, that's one of the things that Melissa Kang is so good to speak to because she's a doctor, because she deals with um, health of adolescents as part of her, that, that's her specialty. One of the things that she keeps emphasizing that you see in the book, but just even to talk with her in person is suffering is not something that you do to be a better person. Like you don't have to suffer. So if, um, say taking Nurofen and Panadol helps you with cramping, then take it. Like there's no reason not to, right? Um, also if you want to skip your period by manipulating the birth control pills, that's completely okay. And it's not going to muck you up. Like that's, you're not going to pay a price with your health at some point down the line. Um, And with your emotional state with PMS, you are completely allowed to find a way to manage that, which could be taking antidepressants for that one week, which is something that I do. Mm. So that one week leading up to your period can be very grim in my house. (laughs) It's like war, right? Um, But I've decided that actually... I'm not benefiting from suffering and neither is my partner and nor are my children. So taking something to help me through that is actually my right and something that I will do and I'll embrace that and I'll actually share that information because it's not hurting anybody and it's actually making my life better. And you have the right to have a good life. One of the things that comes up in the book um, is I have such bad period pains. So dear Dolly Doctor, we've got some letters actually written by real people. Dear Dolly Doctor, I have such bad period pain that I can't go to school some days. And Dolly Doctor is like, you don't have to do that. Like if you have, A, if you have to stay home from school, that's completely okay. But B, there are ways that your GP can help you manage that. You're not alone in this. You're not pioneering pain, okay? This is not something that you have to do to be a good person. Yeah. I love that too and instilling that in girls at such a young age. The example that comes up for me is I – also compete as a boxer. And there was one time when my fight fell on my fir- my first heavy day of my period. Mm. And I was telling my coach and some team members that I, at the time that I know for a fact that the week before my period, I feel very low in energy, don't feel great. And then the, when I actually have my period, I would rather be on the couch, curled up in the fetal position, not in the ring, punching up, you know, <laughs> and that fight, I performed terribly. But they all thought it was in my head and they would not listen to me 
And I found that so hard to deal with. Yeah, they're full of shit. (laughs) So just take it from me that you know your cycle and you also know your moods and your power. Uh, And it's very common for women to be very down in a slump um, in in the week leading up to their period. If you want to know when your power day is, measure the day one that you bleed around 14 days on, so right midway through your cycle, if you can schedule a fight for that day or, say, a work presentation or anywhere where you have to get up and be a little bit, like, vibey and fabulous, yeah. that day, so that the, the tip of your cycle, right on the halfway mark, before you tip over into uh, PMS territory, you are in full f- the full flight of your fabulous powers. <laughs> so try it then and see how much ass you kick. Yeah, that's an awesome tip. I also check my period tracker to see if a potential fight now falls on my period day. (laughs) And I'd say no straight away if that's the case. (laughs) You've got to do these things. And speaking of sports and periods, I know that you interviewed Karan Gandhi for your podcast Mm. a couple of years ago. And for those of you who don't know her, she ran the London Marathon in 2015 on her heavy period day without tampon or pads. I love that she wrote, if there's one person society can't F with, it's a marathon runner. You can't tell a marathoner to clean themselves up or to prioritize the comfort of others over theirs. On the marathon course, I could choose whether or not I wanted to participate in the status quo of shaming. Now, I know that you have run half marathons before. Have you ever tried free bleeding while racing? No, I never have. And I think with her, it just coincided that day one of her period came on the day of this marathon that she'd been training for. And she was like, yeah, I don't want to wear a tampon. It probably won't last the entire race and I'll have to stop and change it and a pad will chafe. So stuff it. Um, So glorious too. And I remember it so clearly hearing about it. It it kept popping up in my social media feeds. Woman makes headlines running London Marathon free bleeding photos here. And I was like, bitch, I could not look at these photos. <laughs> I'm not facing this today. And then I had it eventually because it kept coming up. I had a look and it was so fine. Like it was, she was wearing tights and there was like, like, I don't know, not even a, a not even a third of a cup of blood on the side, sort of inner thigh of her leg. And she just looked like a tough, really cool chick. Like she just looked like someone awesome. And her friends were around her and she was like, yeah, just ran 42Ks. <laughs> and um, So that was, that for me was a turning point. I, uh, Kieran Garney's her name. Google her. She's so inspiring and she's she's a drummer in a, in a rock band. She's like so cool. Complete heaven. <laughs> I love her. But um, to see that and to realize that it wasn't going to punch me in the eye, you know, I wasn't going to contract some horrendous disease from seeing it and was completely okay. That really helped me. Like she did something really pioneering and cool by doing that. Um, whether I want to do it, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. I think, um, I think I would totally do it if somebody said, look, we'll donate to charity if you do it, or if there was a motive for me to do it. But I feel like, um, I might, I might just seem like a bit of a copycat if I were to do it on one of my runs. Yeah, but it did bring up the point, though, of how sometimes in some settings when we see blood, it's totally fine. Mm. But then in other settings, especially when it comes to periods, it's so gross. Yeah. And I thought about boxing, right? So you see people with bloodied noses all the time. And I wondered if a boxer free bled during a fight, what would happen? to a crowd that is actually used to seeing blood all the time. 
I, I don't think I'll try it myself. I, I can see a gleam in your eye, Lisa. I reckon you're thinking about it. I don't know. You're totally thinking about it. It would be amazing, right? My coach would freak out. Well, so what? Your coach didn't believe you when you said you were having a slump. Yeah, true. But he's all right now. After that, he mostly trains women. So now he's attuned to all the different emotions <laughs> and hormonal changes during the month. <laughs> so he says. Yeah. So he's good, yeah. yeah. So what would you love for all women to know about their periods? Um, gosh, I, I think knowing about your cycle is really key. So not just your period, but the, how the whole cycle is going to influence you and your mood and your sort of um, approach to life. Definitely for me at times in my cycle, I do want to just curl up in bed and I do want to just be quiet and quite introverted um, and permission to sort of to say, actually, that's fine. That doesn't mean that I'm a, you know, a loser no. <laughs> or whatever. You know, it's not a failing to to be that person for some of your cycle. So I'd like, I'd love that. I also would love for women who are handing on to their own children um, to really be mindful about accidentally shaming their kids, um, to talk about it with their sons as well as their daughters, um, to remember that not all women bleed, mm. uh, some some don't, um, and not all men don't bleed. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of grey area there, so um, just be a bit open about that and, and a bit accepting if possible. Um, but I think the main thing is like it can actually be kind of fun. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing. You know, you have a reputation of taking on tough topics and speaking your mind. Is that something you learned to do over time or is that something inherent in you? <laughs> I think I was doing it from a very young age, from about um, five years old. I remember when I started school, I was very little. I was like a little runt-sized child and I went to grade one and I went to grade two and all the kids that followed that started in the younger years were still taller than me. So I was still the shortest person in my entire school <laughs> until finally, I think it was grade four, uh, a little girl started in prep who was actually shorter than me and I was so <laughs> relieved. <laughs> so I, I was always, um, you know, that saying about it's not the size of the girl in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the girl. I was always the girl with a big lot of fight in her um, and I think because uh, – I was Asian and grew up in a place where there weren't any other uh, Asian people. Um, and also just because I was little and had three older siblings, I was very fighty and feisty and opinionated. Being the youngest of four, I think, gives you real freedom to just give no fucks <laughs> because you've got your older siblings kind of leading the way and then they're showing you what good looks like and then there's probably one showing you what bad looks like and you get some great examples that you can just completely deviate from. <laughs> so often if you're the fourth or the youngest, you are quite a black sheep or a rebel. So that, that was definitely my role for, from a, a very young age. I think there's a lot of other things that did inform that. Um, my my love of rock and roll, I think, is something that has always rewarded the rebel um, and and celebrated her, you know. So that's always been a place where I felt safe was in, you know, music and, and rock and roll culture. Um, but I think, um, I think that you do learn when you question things or you rebel or you speak up that you get slapped a bit mm. um, or kicked a bit and, um, and you – 
you, it's actually a good way for your enemies to shine a light on themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the public space. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. And I think um, it's, it's a huge source of annoyance for me that I am accused of attention seeking. And I see this, this level, this accusation leveled at, at women. Always, never at men. Men are never attention seeking. It's just women. So, were I to say speak up um, in support of abortion rights, that might be accused of being an attention seeker. It's not. I'm actually really interested that women can access this um, medical procedure, right? But people will try and shut you down as though somehow you're feeding on the oxygen of attention, uh, and it's a real it's a real way to diminish and belittle women, um, and also to shut down an argument without even having the opportunity to, to discuss it. Totally, totally. As though I'm here flicking my hair going, abortion, abortion, look at me, lipstick, oh, my God, <laughs> batting my eyelashes. This is crazy. Um, but, yeah, there's always, there's always a way uh, to, to try and shut women up. Uh, but I think we're getting stronger at uh, forming silos of influence. And that's that's a real idea that I find incredibly attractive. Women might not be in prime ministership or in cabinet or CEOs of the big companies, but we are definitely filling all those spots of middle management, right, and and lower tier work. Within that, the whole fucking thing would collapse if we stepped away, right? They can't do it without us and we are forming, like this podcast is just a really great example of that, is a silo of influence where I can imagine that it's like 90% women listening, 10% men. Within that, this is where we assemble our army, right? <laughs> They're in grave danger and they don't even realise it. But, you know, where we are fortifying, I think, and we're, we're understanding where our strengths lie, we're understanding how we're undermined and the bullshit that surrounds that, the the disparities, the, the way that it can be super unfair and and the way that tradition is upheld because it serves the status quo and the status quo does not serve us. Mm. What do you do for yourself to make sure that you feel that strength to be able to tackle these issues? Mm. And especially, like you said, when you are up against people who don't want to listen or who fire back criticisms that have nothing to do with the argument. Mm. Yeah, it's really tricky because it's it's easy to get swept up in the derailment of an argument um, and, um, yeah, and, and forget what you wanted to say or, or get emotional. And that's such a bad way to have a, a rational argument is when you're really, really angry and you're so angry that your eyeballs are full of blood. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I've got to that stage where I'm like, I actually can't see, I can see red. I can't see anything can anymore. actually see red. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the red mist descends. But I think um, self-care, it's that, it's that thing, isn't it? So I do have some really strict disciplines uh, boxing is one of them. Oh, nice, yeah. fellow boxer. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I'm not, I'm not hardcore like you. But I do, um, I do laugh because every time I do it with a friend who hasn't seen me do it before, they're like, "You get really intense. <laughs> you scare me." And there's this sort of like, uh, there's this gathering of like rage, and and it's a really great way to to get a lot of it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am incredibly disciplined about um, my exercise regime, which I do every day. Without fail, it's like if I have to go into state, where's my exercise going to fall on this day? I'm going to be on a plane. I'm going to be doing this meeting, and I will find a way to schedule it in. Um, and same with um, not drinking. So I've talked about this pretty openly in the past. Um, there's articles out there if you want to Google, but uh, drinking is like 
it's a it's a huge pacifier. It's a way to keep us compliant. Mm. And I think it's so dangerous for women because we are if we if we're woke bitches, if we're woke bitches, we're going to be fucking angry, right? And if we want to try and pacify that with something, alcohol's a really quick and easy and socially accepted way to do it. But our anger is what's going to make us stronger and make us fight for change. And I think um, pacifying ourselves, being compliant. But I, if anybody ever said about me, I'm um, she's very compliant, I would fucking spit. I'd be so upset and so angry. And I think alcohol is like medicine to make us comply. And I think it's really dangerous and horrible, but that's because I'm an alcoholic. So I, I know there's a lot of other people that can drink in moderation, but I'm not one of them. So I completely have eradicated that from my life. And it's, it's been huge for me. Like it's been such a, it's been, you know, that everyone says, how do you fit all this stuff in? Well, the, the reason I can fit it all in is because I'm not all pissy and, and woozy from sort of 7 p.m. or 5 p.m. onwards. You know, I've got all this time now and I don't wake up hungover, so I've got morning time as well as evening time. That's that's how I fit it all in. The answer is pretty straightforward. How long have you been sober now? I've had patches of sobriety where I've gone, this is great, this is life-changing, that have lasted um, two to three years uh, and then I've fallen off the wagon. So this current one, which I hope lasts until I die, has been uh, probably uh, two, and, two, and, two years and eight months. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this one's going to stick. So the previous ones, I didn't tell anyone really what was going on. And Did it I, help not telling anyone? No, it helped to tell. Okay. So so I was secretive ab- about the fact that I thought I might have had a drinking problem. So I might be openly, yeah, I'm not drinking, but not really explaining why I wasn't drinking. Um, so now, I've, now that I talk about how I'm afraid of what happens when I drink and I've told my children about it, I've told my partner about it, I feel like if they saw me with a beer in my hand, it would be like, shit, <laughs> go call some people to come over to do something about this. You know, they yeah. would absolutely support me, which is what I would need. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned too that you exercise every day and that boxing was one of the things you do. Yeah. What else do you like to do for fitness? Okay, I do this thing called Orange Theory. Um, it's like group fitness training. It's in a studio. It's super clean. It, there's amazing coaches and they basically make you sweat <laughs> for an hour, like 55 minutes. You're just sweating. Sometimes I sweat so much, even my hands sweat. Your hands sweat. Yeah. <laughs> and that whole, you wear a heart rate monitor. So the whole time you're, you're basically working and I love it. It's, it's like my drug. Yeah. So I'm so super addicted to that. But yeah, if I don't, if I can't fit that in, I'll go for a run. And if I have a holiday, I'll try and either do hiking or skiing. You seem to have an affinity for tough workouts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if I'm not close to crying, then I know I'm wasting my time here. To finish off, you end your book with a period boss pledge, which includes statements like, a period boss does not judge how the people manage their periods. Your choice, zero judges. So you're pretty boss in your life and career. What kind of statements guide you? Oh, um, oh gosh, there's a lot. I probably can't be pithy in my statements, but I think a, a really guiding force is 
to just give zero fucks. Like your cookbook. Like my cookbooks. <laughs> like kind of like the, the period book, um, like my broadcasting work. People will try and make you care about things that you don't care about. Like I don't care about period shame and I'm not going to engage with that. Um, but people are like, oh, my God, you know, and they will try and push it on you. So I think it's really about um, not wasting energy on other people's judgment. I absolutely do care, for instance, what my partner thinks or what my mum thinks, what my children think, good friends, but the the world at large can kind of fuck itself. Like I'm really happy. I really, I'm very ethical. I love my community and I believe strongly in supporting women. But if people want to have a go at me, they're really going to have to get through a lot of armour to make any impression on me. And also, I guess, on that on not giving any fucks, also not giving any fucks about failure too, like we spoke about earlier. Yeah, failure is a, it's a really tr- it's a really tough one, and I feel like in my life I've got some really epic fails, um, and I have suffered. And I'd like to say, you know, I've learned and I've emerged out of the ashes. She rose with her red hair and she <laughs> ate men like air. But that's not me. Like I was like crawling out of the ashes, bleeding and, and weeping and feeling absolutely miserable and also like uh, wounded in ways that I might never recover from. That's what my failures have looked like. <laughs> I think one of the key things that I've learned from my failures is to, with work, it's often collaborative. What you do, for instance, very collaborative. We've got Dennis here. We couldn't do it without him. Mm. He, do not speak, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but if you were to lose your job, you wouldn't have a dentist. You wouldn't be like able to sit in this soundproof studio, and you'd be fucked. Like you'd be like, "How am I going to podcast without this infrastructure around me?" So your failure would feel like a very isolating thing. <laughs> what I found through my failures was to try and make things happen that didn't require anyone else but me. So if I could write a story or a book or an article or even just like a a 5.2 do list. That's all me. No one can edit it. No one can say we're not publishing that because I'm not asking for it to be published. I'm just doing it as my thing. And I think that women who who do that self-starting stuff like starting a magazine or a podcast or a family, they do it uh, without needing permission and that's really powerful and then they do it in a way that it can't be taken from them without their permission. So that's like the coolest thing ever because the failure then, should it come, it comes on your terms and you're not a slave to a bigger thing that makes shitty choices mm. about you. And especially too because you're doing something that's true to yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I always say. Like when I was a Channel V VJ, my job was to interview musicians all the time and I wanted to be humble and um, respectful, right? But often they were just horrible songs that these people were making that made me <laughs> want to stick two fingers down my throat and go, eh, at the camera, like listen to this, eh. But I had to, um, I had to understand a couple of things. It wasn't my job. That wasn't what my role required. But also even the worst artist has really put themselves out there and they've laboured on that song and they've written it and they've gone into a studio and they've shot a video for it. You know, and there's there's a huge amount of commitment that they have shown that for me as the VJ then, I, I had no experience of, but I could respect that 
you know. So so I think just understanding that what you've done, even if it's write a 300-word article, you know, mm. that nobody sees, no one can take that away from you. You've created that and that's that's cool, right? You've written a book that no one wants to publish. So what? I haven't done that. Like that's amazing. Your mum probably hasn't done a, a book that no one wants to publish. That's all you. So take that and be proud of that and build on that. Maybe your next book will be something that people want to publish. Well, thank you so much for your time, Yumi. That was wonderful. Thanks, Peck, Lisa. Yay! Yay! Thanks for listening to Women's Health Uninterrupted. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you subscribe or leave a review. Want more from us? Of course you do. Pick up the latest copy of Women's Health magazine or visit womenshealth.com.au. If you feel you've been affected by any of the topics in this week's episode, help and support is available by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or beyondblue.org.au.